Good evening to all. This is the Tomorrow Christian Today, taking on Revelation verse 7. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. As Peter said, when you asked them, are you going to leave as well? Peter piped up as usual and replied, Lord, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. And in all honesty, I feel that same way and asking for the Holy Spirit that we may read the Bible, enjoy the Bible. And if nothing ever comes from this, Lord, I guess I'm praying for me to be able to read through the Bible and become even more acquainted with you and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, um, I guess uh, if somebody wants to listen to my voice and through the magic of the internet, if there's something that the Holy Spirit can use in what I say to impress people about your son, Christ the Lord, um, I'll be happy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for caring. And thanks for sending Jesus. Amen. We love you. Amen. Revelation 7. Whenever I see the number 7, I guess I think of it as the number of completeness. God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath was the seventh day, which could be arguably said as Saturday. Um, of course, I don't know if you can really prove that. I mean, you can look at the Jewish people and you can see them walking sometimes to the synagogue. So you can say, yes, Saturday is the Sabbath. I mean, how do you really prove that? Do you really need to prove it? I say that because I went to a church and was absolutely part of the fundamental beliefs. And they had to, you know, if you go to church on Saturday, you've got all the truth, which I now know to be completely wrong because the world between God and man is Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And the day you go into a building does not matter because God wants something more from you. He wants your heart. He wants your love. And if that's how you do it, to go to church on Saturday as the Sabbath, fine. But in the church that I was, um, it wasn't just a difference of opinion. It was um, uh, elitism. And that's really not, that's not really, God doesn't want your pride. Pride won't, won't let you into the kingdom of heaven. It'll keep you. It'll keep you outside. And I detected it was a lot of pride. I wasn't really going there. I saw a YouTube video about a Goliath tiger fish. I mean, this thing looks like a mutant from hell. And this thing can eat crocodiles. It attacks crocodiles. And it's got some serious teeth inside its mouth, like 30 inch, 30, 30 teeth, 30 or 40 uh, assorted looking teeth. And they're like an inch big. And I'm thinking, I think the devil got his hands on some genetics. Like, uh, I, I'm... Not really a, uh, I'm an expert um, aquarium keeper, but I've got a five gallon with uh, my fish, Gerald, and uh, he had stress and ammonia because I didn't know what I was doing, and now he's totally fine. He's all blue. He looks really happy, and I guess the, tight, uh, the tank is cycled. I've learned so much from YouTube about fish and also would like to start up some shrimp. I have a five, I, so some could go in the five gallon. I have a 2.5 gallon. Um, but I guess with the smaller the tank, the more maintenance it might require. So fish, um, I mean, shrimp, you know, I always thought the shrimp ate garbage. They're scavengers, but yet they have to have very pristine water conditions that don't change. Like um, temperature, no, can't change. And they are very, very susceptible to ammonia and nitrites, which I did not know. But I bought some shrimp. Yes, I killed them. I didn't know what I was doing. So now I'm going to buy some more. And hopefully they're going to live a long, long time. And nature is a fascinating part of God. When you see all these different things and you're learning about the nitrites and all the nitrifying bacteria, 
Our God is amazing. He's a genius, a genius, a genius. He's eternal. His mind never stops. It never fatigues. It just goes on and on. And there's so much knowledge there. And I feel like I've learned so much, but it's nothing. It's just really nothing. But it's just amazing to learn something and say, hey, I didn't know that before. Anyways, I digress. I'm sorry about that. I'm too chatty. It is Friday and it is the weekend. Thank God it's Friday. Let's start reading Revelation 7 in the NLT. God's people will be preserved. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on the, any tree. Now, when you see four corners of the earth, um, I think it means that it sounds like they're controlling things. They're holding it back or keeping it bay or, or holding back the chaos. But I often wondered why it said to not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I think in Revelation 17, the sea was likened to people. And as for the earth, I mean, the earth could represent people, but the sea was always like people. Like the sea that you saw, it says in Revelation 17, represents every nation, every tongue, every creed. It just represents people upon people upon people. And in Revelation 20, and also in the Old Testament, it's the fact that God's judgment falls on a sea of people. Many, many people. That's a frightening thought. It's a frightening image. But why does it say tree? And I think there's a story. I wonder if I can find it. I know there's a story in the Old Testament. And I'm going to turn. Let me see if I can find it here. If I can't, I can't. And I don't see it. So why don't I try to go one more place that I thought it was. Then I'll tell you the story. And then maybe you can find it. Because I do remember it. Um, okay, and I can't. I thought it was either in uh, Matthew 12 or John 12. And unfortunately, I can't find it. So apparently my, um, my long-term memory is pretty bad. But I do remember the story, and it's uh, and the story is like this. So maybe you'll have to find it at your leisure if you wish. So there's a man that's blind, and Jesus says, "Go wash your eyes out in the pool." And the man washes his eyes out, and his eyes he begins to see, and he says, "I'm quoting from memory. I see men like trees walking around." And it always struck me that maybe that was a way that the Bible was saying, you know, the trees, don't let the, don't let the wind blow on the trees, meaning people. And I do find it funny how, a, how a, the cross looks like a person. Jesus was nailed up on the cross. You know, it looks like a plus sign, but it also looks like a human figure. It's got two outstretched arms where his arms were. It's got a head where his head was. And it's got a, a long body that goes into the ground. It looks like where his feet could be, a cross. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It says, we were crucified with Jesus on the cross. Our old sin nature was, so that he could justify us. He could justify us and cleanse our sins. Even though we still sin, we now can come to God sinless because we are in Christ and we can talk to God and we can have our sins forgiven, all in the name of Christ our Lord. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure somebody else has thought of that, if that is true. And if nobody has, well, I could be wrong. 
Um, what else? And when I see seven, um, I think of it as I think of it as the number of judgment. Jesus was dead on the seven. He was dead on the Sabbath day, and it says Christ is the end of the law. Well, what day did the law have as a symbol? It was the seventh day. And Sunday is supposed to be the eighth day or the first day of the new creation. You can go to church as a Christian on any day. But just to say tradition or just to say a personal opinion, um, there's no preference what day you go into a building. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. No matter what day you go to church and worship God corporately with other Christians. But um, so that doesn't that the day doesn't matter anymore. In the law, it did matter. Uh, the seventh day was the holy day and it was, they say, reserved for the Jews. Although when the Jews left Egypt, it said, well, if somebody, if the Gentiles um, comes to you, bonds to you, goes with you, then let the stranger also partake in the rituals that you're partaking in. Although I do remember now it said that if you were a Moabite or something, you are not allowed to be in the um, gathering of the Lord. You are not allowed to be part of the gathering. So I kind of forgot the words, but it was something like that. So there was an aloofness there. But then it says, verse 2, And I saw another angel coming up from the east, again from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. So it's a seal. And he shouted to those four angels. So another angel's coming up, and he's shouting to the four guys who are keeping the winds at bay or the winds of chaos or keeping sin from falling totally on earth, who had been given power to harm land and sea. Wait. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Okay, so my personal opinion, my personal hermeneutic, uh, you know, uh, don't get angry. I just find this very funny that this is Revelation 7. I find the flood happening in Genesis 7. I find the coronavirus being the seventh coronavirus. I just find that really, really odd. Just a coincidence. I can't prove anything. I'm not trying to prove anything. But I know people, I have told people this a little bit. And have, <laughs> you, you're just a numerologist. I don't know if that is bad or good. I really don't. I'm not, I don't need to push any hermeneutic because that hermeneutic, what I just said, has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation is Christ the Lord and you have relationship with him. But I find it very 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 odd things that make you go hmm and then it says the following verse four and i heard how many were marked with the seal of god this is not a very long chapter um but you know all the all the chapters in the bible have something very meaningful to say and it can say different things to different people i'm just reading it aloud having fun seeing what it says to me and putting it out there I don't, I'm not teaching anybody anything and I don't want to. I don't want people to, you know, um, listen to what I say and have to agree with me. I want you to follow Jesus. And if reading the Bible and having fun and thinking about what the words are um, is going to be meaningful for you to help you get closer to God, to get closer to Jesus, that's, I'll be happy. That's what I want. I want to promote Jesus because I came out of a system that was promoting somebody else and she's dead. And I don't want to hear from her again. She's in the grave. And Isaiah 8, 19 says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek God by following a dead person who's buried in the ground and who is just a, arguably a human person when the living Christ, the living God-man, is at the right hand of the Father for you? Why?
I don't understand why. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. Is this a real number? Is this a metaphorical number? Is this a literal number? Is it, you know, 12 times 12, you know, Jews times Gentiles times 10 times 10 times 10? You know, you have three tens, you know, three is always in the Bible too. It's like a number of completion. It's, it's one of those numbers. What does it mean? I don't know. I've heard much speculation. But then here's where it gets strange. Verse 5, from Judah. 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar. Was Issachar and Manasseh, were they the two sons of Joseph? So I wonder what guys are missing because it seems to be the sons of Jacob, but it's also Issachar and Manasseh. I think I'm getting that right. I think those were the sons of Joseph. I'm not 100% sure, but I think those were the sons of Joseph. Um, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, 12,000 from Benjamin. I kind of forget who's missing here. Who are the immediate sons of Joseph that are not in this list? Well, one name comes to my mind immediately is Dan. Wasn't there a Dan? He's not here. So I don't, I forgot the reason. Why would he be substituted? Now, I've heard this, and I know um, John MacArthur has said this, that uh, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish people, like Jewish Jewish people, who are going to um, suddenly arise and start preaching the gospel. And I can't dispute that. I just wonder why that would be the case. Because the names... So I'm wondering, could this be um, spiritually Jewish people? Um, I say that for two reasons. One is that the definition of a Jew has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But I see these names, and I really can't dispute it, other than to say, is there something about those names? Is there something about those sons of um, Jacob, who was later Israel, and also Joseph? Was there a certain attribute that they had? Is that why they've been grouped? If they're, if they're not really Jewish-Jewish, some could be Jewish-Jewish, but some could be like spiritually Jewish. Is there a name, is there a reason why God would group them or organize them under a certain son that was from Jacob? The answer is, I do not know. I really don't know. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, because why I feel it doesn't have to be Jewish Jewish. So I don't really know if it's a literal number of Jews that have the gospel and start preaching either to other Jewish people or to the world in general. And that would be a really big sign because corporatively the Jewish nation really doesn't want to have anything to do with the new covenant. They're in the old covenant, they're happy there and they want to wait for um, a Messiah. And, it's, and as I've heard, it's anybody but Jesus Christ. Um, but let's look in, I know the, so unlike the last example I used, I definitely know um, the verse that I want to go to. And I remember reading this and it's in Romans 2, um, 28. Here it is. Romans 2, 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So we already studied that about when Abraham he was circumcised, him and Ishmael and all the people in his house were circumcised in Genesis and he was 99 years old. Ouch. All of a sudden, Paul is coming along. He's seen a vision of Jesus. He's saying that circumcision doesn't really matter anymore. 
because he's saying, he's saying to me that the definition of a Jew has changed. It's not the physical nation of Israel anymore. It could be. There's definitely um, Christian people, New Covenant people who are Jewish, Jewish, um, you know, Jews, Jews for Jesus, um, Messianic Jews. This guy came to our church and he was preaching and he looked like he was from either he looked like he was Spanish or he looked like he was from Africa. And then all of a sudden he was telling about how he was converted. He was Jewish before. And I'm looking, he doesn't look Jewish at all. And then he just started speaking the Shema in Hebrew. And it's like, wow, either you learn that language or you really sound like, I mean, this guy had a battle to become a Christian, but he was like, I guess maybe he was half Jewish. And I mean, he rattled it off perfectly. Okay, it's like, wow, I thought I was Jewish because I came from a church that was Old Covenant. And my friend kept asking me, hey, uh, Mr. Tomorrow Christian, are you Jewish? And I'd say, no, why do you keep calling me Jewish? I'm not Jewish. There's no DNA in me that's Jewish. But this definition here, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the old covenant, the physical nation of Israel, the Jews who were the chosen people, have now rolled up into people of any nation, any creed, any race, who have been circumcised by the Spirit, who have a new covenant heart. Does that apply to Revelation 7 verse 5? The answer is, I don't know, probably not, and I really can't make it stick. But when someone tells me something from the Bible and they say with such utmost confidence that this is the way it is and it can't be any other way. I don't like that. I don't know maybe if that offends my pride or maybe it's their pride talking, but if you read a chapter of the Bible and you really think it means something else, nobody's going to be able to force you to believe what they say. I mean, you could say, yeah, maybe I could be wrong or I might not have the big picture or you might be wrong. But if you really feel that you're right or you think that you have something to bring to the table, I just don't like it when some Christians decide what is what opinion is truth and what opinion is just conjecture and false. I understand the difference between truth and heresy, but within the narrow road of truth, there's also variations. I can't look at a person and say, oh, that guy's... He's not bringing uh, an ESV to church. He's not wearing a suit and tie like me. He's not wearing black shoes like I am. He can't be a Christian like I am. We all have our standards, and I certainly had my own internal standards, but I've come to realize it's not up to me. It's between the person and God. And so I really can't say why this would be Jewish, Jewish. It does say 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. It says tribes of Israel. But Romans 2, 28, 29 says a Jew is not just the nation of Israel anymore. It's now people who love God through Jesus Christ. The definition of a Jewish person has changed because Israel means overcomer. That's what Jacob did. He overcame. He wrestled the man and he had a limp. He wrestled before God and he was an overcomer, but he had a limp. And so the children of Israel were the overcomers and we are overcomers. 
we are overcoming the world. That's what Jesus says. He says this in John 16. Let me see if I can find that. Hopefully, my memory's not that bad, but it says here, Jesus says, I like it when I remember where a verse is and it's actually there. I don't like it when my mind goes, takes me one place and it's like the verse is nowhere to be found. John 16:33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Israel was an overcomer. The people of God, Israel, were overcomers. And now Christians are overcoming this present world because this world is going nowhere fast. It's dying and First John says, this world is passing away. And if you want to be part of the new covenant universe, the new covenant world, that's being in the new covenant Christ, which is Jesus our Lord and Savior. Because he is in, because he is in God and we are in him and that's relational and integrational. Praise from the great crowd, verse 9. After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, which we take to be Jesus the Christ. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Wow, just like, just like when Jesus was in Jerusalem and they, were, they had palm branches in their hands. So this is kind of the same imagery. And they were shouting with a mighty, mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That's what they were doing one week before Jesus was crucified and then he was taken to trial and the crowd which was for him turned fickle and turned against him. That was on the earth. But this is something eternal, salvational and heavenly. Is this what a vision that John saw? Is this metaphorical or is this a metaphor of what is to come? People gathered around God, forever gathered around God, never to be separated from God ever again. Wherever God is, there's where his people be. And wherever his people are, that's where God is. We will never be separated again. We will see him face to face. Isn't that wonderful? This will be a new creation, a new universe where you can be there. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a story. There's no strings here. There's one string. God wants your heart. He wants your allegiance. In the Old Testament, he says to his people, Israel, I don't want your bulls. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't, you think I take delight in all this blood? And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, Lord, you're the one who gave that to them. But it was training wheels, it's to get them to love God. Just the old covenant just didn't work. The old covenant was like a separation agreement. What's the one word that's missing from a separation agreement, my friends? Trust me on this. The word is love. A separation agreement is just that. It's, it's a covenant, it's a contract, but it's a distance. It's a loveless distance. It's a distance that says, keep your distance. I will do this, you will do this, or we will do this. And it's a transaction, nothing more. It's not a relationship, it's just a rule. Break the rule and there's penalties. God wants more. He wanted more from Adam and Eve, and he wants more from every human being, and he does want more from you. He's a jealous God, he wants your heart. Absolutely. I miss my children. I want them to love me. I want them to call me. But I realize that I cannot force them to do it. I cannot do that. That's not true love. Love is initi initiates. Love calls up. Love says, hey, dad, I miss you. 
I miss my children, love them every day. Sometimes I send a message, but not too much because I don't want them to feel that I'm running and chasing after them. If you are in a marriage or a relationship and you're chasing after the person all the time to get something out of them, I'm sorry to say that may not be so relationship. That may not be a two-way street because you're putting in all the work, you're doing all the work and you're getting nothing back. I guess love is not supposed to want anything back, but I, I think that if you're in a relationship, a marriage, and you're not getting anything back, or a friendship, you have a friend, you call them up, but they don't call you, or they don't care about your problems, or they don't help you um, listen to you, or they don't clap for your victories, you might seriously wonder why you have a friend like that. It's not a two-way street. It's a one-way street, and you're the one that's giving. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. I think Amen means let it be so. Did you hear that? I heard let it be so. I think there's a word Selah in the Bible. Uh, there's, it's like it's in the Psalms or the Proverbs. I forgot what Selah means. S-E-L-A-H. Sometimes I have to relearn something until it because it doesn't stick the first time. Now when I want it to to tell what it means, I don't know. Although I guess I could really Google this really fast. Let, let me see. I don't have Google here, but if I can do that. What does Selah mean? Amen means let it be so, and Selah means what? Okay, I've got something here. To lift up, exalt. To lift up or exalt. Some scholars believe the Selah was a musical notation, possibly meaning silence or pause. Others end a louder strain, piano, etc. Okay, Selah. Interesting. So there's a couple of means there. Selah. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Selah. Psalms 3, verse 8. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory. Selah. To lift up, exalt. Lift up the Lord our God. That's why we're reading his word. We want to lift God up. We want to tell him that his Bible is important, that his son is important, that we love him and that we want to be like him. We want access to the Holy Spirit. We want to run after God because he's chasing after us. Does he have to do all the work in the relationship? Verse 11, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Did I just read that? I got a bad memory. Verse 13. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, I guess John, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. Is, there, is it real robes or is it a symbol of your character? Your character has been cleansed by Jesus. Your character has, your character has been sanctified by Jesus as you walk with God every day. He said he would be with you to the end of the world and beyond. God said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And he said, there's nothing in heaven that can separate you from the love of your God. Nothing. 
You may not feel it some days. You may weep some days. You may have tears some days. The world doesn't care about the saints or the state of the saints. There may be tears. There may be mourning. There may be depression. But joy comes in the morning. And every day, every second with Jesus is a new morning. Not M-O-U-R-N-I-G, but M-O-R-N-I-N-G. You may be in a valley, but there's but you when you hit the bottom, you go up. You go up with Jesus. The world's got its own problems, but they don't have any God to walk with them. They have to deal with it on their own. You don't have to deal with it on your own. You have an eternal God and his eternal son watching over you. Jesus says, Take courage. I have overcome the world. You will overcome. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. I want to read I want to read something that just occurred to me. It just came into my head. If I can find it, Joshua. I used to tell this to my son. Let's see. It says verse 9, "Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous?" Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 15. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. We are in his temple. Is that a real temple in heaven in the world to come? Well, I thought the revelation says there is no temple there or parts of it says there's no temple there, no nor night there. But I'm not really sure. We are we are God's temple. He is our temple. We'll see God face to face. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Wonderful. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. I think that's spiritual and as well as physical. You will never be hungry or thirsty or needy again. You will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. You'll never be in famine, never be in want. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? I know it's true. I know it's true. I know my God doesn't lie. I know this book does not lie to me. And I know my Savior is telling me the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to God. Follow me. Come to me if you want to live. God draws you to Jesus, and Jesus is the doorway to God. It's a perfect circle. You have to be on it. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You will never weep again. You will never be separated from your loved ones again. You'll never ever experience death or sickness or illness or cancer or fear. Those days are coming. They're right around the corner. He is coming. Are you ready? He is ready. Are you coming?